Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, I hope you're doing fine whenever you find yourself listening to this episode. I'm excited for it. I've been looking forward to this episode in particular for a while. Uh, but before we get into it, I do want to make a note that the Shepherds 360 conference is starting this next week. So it's definitely been a bit of a whirlwind for us at the seminary and at the church getting ready for that. And I am really excited for that. And if you're not able to come to the conference, usually the audio files of the presentations are available a couple weeks after the conference. I mean, I'm sure you can access many of the main sessions through live stream or on Facebook Live after the fact uh, immediately, but uh, the actual recordings are usually available a couple weeks after, after they process everything, get everything uploaded. But there's going to be quite a few big name presenters, and I'm thinking that this is going to be a really good conference. It's the most we've ever had registered. I think there's over 850 people that are signed up to be at the conference, and we're really looking forward to the Lord doing some amazing things. And I'm doing some presentations. Uh, Dr. Grisanti, one of my mentors from Masters, is there doing a presentation. Looking forward to seeing him. Uh, There's just a lot of people that I'm looking forward to reconnecting with or meeting for the first time that I've always wanted to meet some of these individuals. So it'll be a great time. And if you're going to be at the conference, uh, please introduce yourself. Love to love to meet you. Well, today we're we're I wanted to say completing, but we're not completing. We're still have a couple episodes left, but this one is completing one of the major arguments that is utilized by paedo-baptists in the reformed tradition, and that's the link between baptism and circumcision. Now, again, just by way of reminder, if you're thinking about paedo-baptism as a whole, you have the broader camps of Lutheran theology and Catholic theology, which would not argue at all like the reformed uh, paedo-baptist community. And so there's a difference. So for example, this episode, I, I think would actually have great agreement um, among Catholic and Lutheran theologians, for example. And I was listening to an interview um, by Jordan Cooper, who's a doctorate, teaches at a Lutheran seminary, is a uh, pastor of a Lutheran church. And one of the things that he was adamant about is that he doesn't think that there's much of a connection between baptism and circumcision, which is interesting because he holds to paedo-baptism. And so we will address more arguments that paedo-baptists bring forward, but I do have to say that this is one of the most important arguments that in the Reformed tradition they bring forward as a defense for paedo-baptism. And the reason is because of what we've talked about in the previous episodes. In the previous episodes, the two main foundational items that we've talked about is that the covenant of grace unifies the Old and New Testaments in continuity, and that there's one people of God, so no Israel church distinction. Um, that's essential in how many people are arguing same church, same people of God, same plan of God unified under the covenant of grace. Now, under those rubrics, those headings, the covenant sign of circumcision in the old covenant and baptism in the new covenant have to be the same. And the reason for that is because the covenant has to be the same. And if the covenant sign is different, or if there's different expectations for the covenant sign, then there could be a legitimate argument for somebody to say, well, hey, why are we assuming that infants are being a part of the New Testament covenant sign? Because this is, this is different. There's some, there's some major disconnections here. So it has to be with how the reform tradition has, has argued for this. It has to be an integral part of this. And we're going to um, talk about this as, as we go today. So when we go through this, I think it's just really good to remind ourselves that the covenant of grace, we've done plenty of quotations from covenant theologians, paedo-baptists on this, that the covenant of grace is the foundational argument that everyone uses. And I wanted to just give one one more quote to kind of summarize how this is working from um, Burkhoff's systematic theology. He says, quote, the covenant of grace, as it is revealed in the New Testament, 
is essentially the same as that which governed the relation of Old Testament believers to God. Okay, so end quote, and notice what he's saying there is he's saying that we have the the same essential foundation in both Old and New Testaments and how God is dealing with believers, and that's going to be why we have the uh, covenant sign being the same. Now, obviously, there's differences, and I'm nobody would argue on covenant or dispensational uh, critique that they're saying that there's there's no change whatsoever because. I think many covenant theologians would would place an emphasis on the fact that the new covenant is broadening the impact to all nations now there's a there's a greater emphasis on grace and there's richer blessings uh, however that might be defined they're now being poured out under the new covenant administration but the the covenant itself the essence of it is the exact same that's why just a little later Burkhoff says quote this covenant and he's referring to the Abrahamic covenant there is still in force and is essentially identical with the, quote, new covenant of the present dispensation, end quote. So in other words, he's saying there's a there's a line of continuity between the Abrahamic covenant and new covenant. They are essentially the same. And therefore, in a covenant theologian's understanding, this is why we have the equation between the covenant signs, baptism, and circumcision. Now, I would say that we could argue, as we have in previous episodes, where we could show that there's really kind of a a lack of foundation for understanding a covenant of grace. I don't think a covenant of grace is an appropriate category. I think that there's many problems with that. I also think that the way the author of Hebrews talks about the replacement of the new covenant is that it's replacing the Mosaic Covenant. It's not replacing the Abrahamic Covenant. So we've talked about all of that. But I think that there is an important element here where we we want to latch on to this argument and assume for the sake of argument that that this is true. And and this is how Reformed Baptists have traditionally argued as well, because assuming for 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 the moment that there is a covenant of grace, well Let's compare. Let's let's go ahead. This is this is one of the benefits of the Reformed Pado Baptist argument here is that it provides us with an, an actual benchmark by which we can analyze biblical texts and which we can compare circumcision and baptism and see if there are some dissimilarities. So one of the things that I, I want to go into here is that yes, we can we can look big picture like we have. But here I want to, in this episode, focus specifically on the argument itself. We're going to compare baptism and circumcision, and we're going to look and see if the covenant theologians and their understanding of the link between circumcision and baptism is correct. Now, just so people um, understand that I'm not making this up, I want to let Pado baptists speak for themselves, and I acknowledge that there are a variety of views within this, so I've tried to take a broad uh, a broad picture here of different Pado Baptists and give their quotes. So I've I've given this quote before, but I wanna I wanna mention it here. Mark Ross and his his discussion on the link between baptism and circumcision, he says if there's no direct proof, this is his quote. If there's no direct proof of the sort discussed above can be given for the Pado Baptist position, what kind of evidence can be given? I would maintain that the case fundamentally rests on establishing two principal contentions. First that baptism and circumcision have essentially the same meaning. And second, the covenant community is similarly constituted in the Old and New Testaments. All right, so that's Mark Ross. What he's saying is, and this is what we're zeroing in on. We've given this quote in a previous episode, and we talked about the covenant community, but now we're going to talk about the first part of his quote. He says, baptism and circumcision have essentially the same meaning. Okay, that's that's what his proposition is. Now, this is similar to some of the older Paedo-Baptists, for example, B.B. Warfield, who given this uh, quote before, um, he says that uh, the argument in a nutshell is this, God established the church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. They must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. Uh, they are still then members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. Among these ordinances is baptism, which standing in a similar place in the new dispensation to circumcision in the old is like to be given to children. So very concise, very, very well thought out there by Warfield. And he's saying um, baptism stands in the similar place. Now, again, nobody would say that that's, it's exactly the same. 
Okay. But the question that we're going to be asking is what are the differences and is there biblical precedent for maintaining those differences? That's, that's the key here. So for example, I think if we think about just what a paedo-baptist would be allowed to talk about the differences, I think that it's, even though they're not spelled out scripturally, I would be, I would, I would concede. And maybe, maybe some people would take um, issue with this. I'm happy to concede that there are some differences that we could allow uh, in seeing a correspondence. For example, uh, expanding the sign from males in the Old Testament to male and female in the New Testament. Now, that could potentially be problematic, okay, uh, because there there is no statement in Scripture about that. But I'm willing, for the sake of argument, to concede that that's just a appropriate differentiation with a fuller outpouring of grace, an expansion of it. Also, uh, the timing doesn't have to be eight days after birth. Uh, there, there's some flexibility in the timing there. I'm also willing to concede that those are differences. Okay. Uh, and they are significant in some regard, but I'm not going to emphasize those. I'm going to allow those to stand because I think there are bigger fish to fry, um, as far as raising some issues. So assuming their framework for a moment, okay, yes, let's expand the sign to include male and female. Um, and let's allow there to be further time. So in other words, Baptism and circumcision are not the same because the outward expression is obviously different. And then you also have an expansion given the fact that the new covenant is a more gracious realization of the Abrahamic covenant. All right. So let's continue on and think through some of the older paedo-baptists like John Calvin, for example. Now, John Calvin is very, very clear on this issue. He says in his institutes, quote, there is now no difficulty in seeing wherein the two signs agree and wherein they differ. Talking about baptism and circumcision, he is. He says, the promise in which we have shown the power of the signs consists is one is is one in both. So in other words, the power behind the signs is the same. The promise of the paternal favor of God, of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And the thing figured is one in the same. Regeneration. The foundation on which the completion of these things depends on is one in both. Wherefore, there is no difference in the internal meaning from which the whole power and the peculiar nature of the sacrament is to be estimated. The only difference which remains is in the external ceremony. Hence, we may conclude that everything applicable to circumcision applies also to baptism, accepting always the difference in the visible ceremony. Now, notice what he's saying there. Uh, this is, oh, and uh, I should have, I missed the last part of his quote here. This is good too. Hence, it is incontrovertible that baptism has been substituted for circumcision and performs the same office. So notice what he's saying there is, according to Calvin, in his own words here, he's saying that the only difference between baptism and circumcision is what it looks like. That's all he's saying. And that, notice that's, that's a very concrete, measurable thing that we can look now. Is it true? as Calvin and others are arguing, that baptism and circumcision are the exact same except with their outward expression. And again, we'll include in that, assuming Calvin doesn't specify it here, but we'll we'll assume for the sake of argument that that, that allows for different timing on when that takes place. It doesn't have to be eight days, and it can also be men and women. Boys and girls, it doesn't have to be uh, just male children as in circum- circumcision. Now, Calvin obviously argues strenuously against the Anabaptists that the, the, because of the same covenant, the one covenant of grace, as it were, um, the applicability of this covenant sign to Christians is the exact same. And so he's, he's very adamant about that. Now, another Paedo-Baptist names, named James Bannerman, who in his work, Church of Christ, uh, wrote these three propositions in defense of infant baptism. No, notice the clarity in which he, he's discussing this again. He says, in the first place, Circumcision and baptism are both to be regarded as the authorized ordinances for formal admission of members into the church. Now, I got to stop there and say, notice his assumptions, one people of God, because he calls Israel and the church, the church, right? So, and then he's also talking about this as the standard for both covenant communities, right? Um, because he would view it as one covenant community, not both. So in the first place, circumcision and baptism are the authorized ordinance. Second, 
He says, circumcision and baptism are expressive of the same spiritual truths and are to be identified as the signs and seals of the same covenant blessings. So in other words, again, he's saying baptism and circumcision look the exact same. They signify the exact same things. Okay, and then in the third place, he says the oneness of circumcision and baptism is yet further established by the fact that baptism has come in room of circumcision. Now, that's another older way of saying that baptism has replaced circumcision exactly. And so he's saying we know that they're connected because baptism has obviously replaced circumcision. So that's Bannerman uh, giving uh, more fuel to the fire as well, seeing, seeing baptism as the replacement of circumcision. Pierre Marcel, who is uh, a very well-known paedo-baptist quoted often, says this, The New Testament establishes no essential difference between circumcision and baptism. Such differences are there that are there are only formal. Baptism has taken the place of circumcision. That's his you know, blanket statement saying, in as many words, baptism has replaced circumcision. Richard Pratt, who is uh, a modern, well-known paedo-baptist, in fact, he was the one who wrote in the Four Views on Baptism book uh, that Zonerman put out. He says, uh, alluding to the Belgic Confession, he says, Reformed theologians and commentators typically focus on baptism as an initiation into the covenant by pointing out a similar analogy between baptism and circumcision. Now, he's a little more careful there saying that there's a similar analogy, okay, leaving room, uh, something that older Paedo-Baptists didn't really do. And But in quoting the Belgic Confession, he kind of tips his hat here. He says, as the Belgic Confession states, Quote, having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, he established in its place the sacrament of baptism. Baptism does what circumcision did for the Jewish people. Okay, so it's it's even confessional in the Reformed standard that baptism is the replacement of circumcision. Now, I alluded to Mark Ross earlier, and again, I want to give a quote uh, as he defines uh, Reformed Paedo-Baptist. He says, quote, those who subscribe to covenantal infant baptism maintain that baptism has now replaced circumcision as the mark of covenant membership, and that baptism's meaning and application are essentially the same as circumcisions in the Old Testament period. I don't know if you can get any clearer than Ross's quote there. You know, baptism has replaced circumcision. The meanings of the two are, are essentially the same. Again, later on in, in his chapter, Ross summarizes the argument saying, Our investigation so far has shown that members of the new covenant are heirs of the covenant promises made to Abraham and are rightly regarded as belonging to Abraham's seed. If baptism is the sign of that covenant in the New Testament, having the same meaning that circumcision did in the old, then surely the newborn infants of believers in the New Testament are just as entitled to receive the sign of the covenant membership as their predecessors were in the Old Testament. Now, I give all of these quotations, and now some of you are asleep, but some of you are you know, ready for me to make the conclusion on this uh, quotation. So the reason I go into depth in quoting all of these individuals, because I don't want to, I don't want to say what somebody believes. I'm just trying to show what what everyone believes here. And it's important to make this distinction because not all Paedo-Baptists argue the same, but this is the Reformed tradition, the Presbyterian tradition. This is the argument that that the circumcision rite, as performed in the Old Testament, is the pattern, is the type which baptism replaces. And what we see then is this continuity. And Mark Ross's quote that I just quoted showed how all of the Paedo-Baptists have drawn the connection between the Abrahamic and new covenants, right? So that's that's foundational. If the Abrahamic covenant is not equated with the new covenant, you have problems. And this is one of one of the if, and I would argue in the Reformed tradition, this is one of the only ways they can show that connection is trying to draw the parallels between baptism and circumcision. Because otherwise, if this argument is fallacious or if it doesn't work, then how are you going to argue when there's so much evidence to the contrary that, that the new covenant isn't, isn't a replacement of the Abrahamic covenant? But this is, this is really essential. And that's why this is a key argument for Reformed Paedobaptists. Almost every single chapter of a Paedobaptist argument has to deal with circumcision, which again is contrast to the way Catholics and Lutherans argue for Paedobaptism. But this is because there is a 
a covenant of grace, which is viewed as unifying the Old and New Testaments um, in the Reformed Paedo-Baptist tradition. Now, apart from some minor um, expansions like the Gentile inclusion and and girls being included to this, you know, the the baptism and circumcision are viewed as equal. Now, the key issue here is not really denying that there are similarities between circumcision and baptism. And I know there are some who probably would try to say that there are like no similarities, but I feel like that's just lame. I feel like there are similarities, right? So for one, I mean, one of the biggest things is that obviously baptism is viewed as part of the the, I don't know if you want to say sign. Some people don't think it's the new covenant sign. I think some people would view the Lord's Supper as the new covenant sign, but, but I think we could even say just assuming that baptism is the sign of the new covenant, it is obviously the initiatory entrance into the new covenant. I mean, I think the, I think the New Testament paints it in that picture and I would be fine saying that. And I would say circumcision is the entrance into the old covenant in the Old Testament. So there's obviously a connection between those. And I think that that's fine. I don't, I don't, you know, but it's also, it would be incorrect to just assume that those covenant signs are the same unless you assume the covenant is the same, which is where, where the big problem is. But I think we can address this as a different issue. We've already talked about the fact that the covenants are not the same. But I want to talk about from this perspective, just let's look at the evidence and see if there are dissimilarities between baptism and between circumcision. And really, there are two big ones that I want to point out. And we can we can address some sub points within those dissimilarities. So this, in my mind is the biggest dissimilarity between baptism and circumcision. So the first, and in my, in my mind, the most important dissimilarity between the two is that faith is inherently linked with baptism in the New Testament. Faith is not linked with circumcision. Now, if you, if you're interested more on this, you need to go back and listen to episode 94, where I talked about the historic link between faith and baptism. And one of the things that we talked about in that episode is that the church has, uh, historically, um, pretty unanimously assumed that faith and baptism are linked. Uh, it is one of those things where, uh, the Bible's pretty clear about that. All the examples that we see in scripture seem to put forward the connection between um, faith and baptism. In fact, in Ephesians 4, the connection is so strong that Paul says um, in the in the famous formula there, he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And many prominent New Testament scholars say that that's possibly a early baptismal affirmation. And one of the reasons they say that is because it's so obvious that faith and baptism are tied together in the New Testament. And so apparently during the time that Paul's writing, the Christians were affirming the fact that as believers, we have one faith, one baptism, and they're tied together, um, obviously underneath one Lord. And so it's it's pretty clear as you go through the New Testament that faith is linked with baptism, and it wasn't until Ulrich Zwingli in the Reformation where because of the Anabaptist call that, hey, faith is essential to baptism, how can infants have faith? It wasn't until that uh, where Zwingli said, hey, this is, this is not good, so he started to argue against the necessity of faith uh, as being uh, essential to baptism. And it, and so that launched a tradition in the Reformed Pado Baptist communion, uh, community, I should say, where you have an argument, uh, being made where faith is no longer essential to baptism. Now, it's, it's actually interesting because if you look at how Pado Baptists talk about this, uh, they, they do argue, um, that faith and, uh, baptism can't be linked because circumcision and faith can't be linked. So for example, I, I look at Ross again and, um, he says, quote, if circumcision is taken directly as a sign and seal of faith or of imputed righteousness or of an inward spiritual transformation, it fails miserably. Far too many circumcised Jews of the old Testament and of the new Testament prove to be hostile to God. It bears saying that we have the same problem in the New Testament. If baptism is understood to be a sign of faith or a sign that one has received the forgiveness of sins, then it too fails miserably, end quote. So in other words, what he's saying there is that it 
saying that faith can't be a part of circumcision or baptism because too many people who were circumcised or or baptized uh, fell away from the faith. So therefore, it can't be the sign of faith because too many people showed to be apostates. But what I would point out here, and I want to be careful with how I'm saying, because I want to respect Ross, but, but I think what we would qualify this is what's known as the is ought fallacy. And it's really a form of, um, illogical thought process because you're saying, because something is the way it is, that's how it ought to be understood. Okay. Do you understand? That's the is ought fallacy. In other words, what we see is what ought to be. Um, but that's not the case, right? So we understand that there's, there's a sin in the world and we know that there are people who deceive themselves or deceive other people in making a profession of faith and then they fall away. It's the parable of the soils, Mark four, Jesus told us this would happen. It's always this way. People deceive themselves in their hearts. Um, they deceive other people. They, there are false teachers who do it for ill begotten gain. And so it's not saying that's how it should be but it's how it is. And so let, let's just do a simple illustration. Um, if you take the reasoning that Ross is using here, saying because people fall away, therefore it can't be a sign of faith. If you just use a simple illustration, imagine um, somebody making the conclusion that because a runner does not finish the race, that means that by definition, a runner running the race doesn't mean he's supposed to finish. I mean, that's completely illogical. Or if you think about it from a uh, wedding perspective, because a lot of paedo-baptists will use the wedding as an illustration of what baptism is. And so if you take a wedding illustration, just because one person breaks their wedding vow, that doesn't mean the picture of the wedding ceremony isn't supposed to communicate a picture of unity and fidelity. So in other words, because someone fails and breaks the picture doesn't mean the picture is not still valid, right? So that is something that we need to acknowledge. I think it's it's a little sloppy to argue that just because we see examples of people breaking um, the pattern, that, that we can't allow for exceptions with that. So I think you need stronger argumentation to do that. The real question we need to answer is, does Scripture put an emphasis on a link between faith and baptism? Is that what scripture does? And then whatever you want to do, do that. Argue um, by example and think through that. But you have to answer the fundamental question, is faith and baptism linked? And I don't think there's any way you can go through the New Testament and say, yeah, faith and baptism are not not linked. I, any fair exegesis, any examination of the material, you're going to come away with that conclusion. And so you have to account for that in your system. But uh, as paedo-baptists understand, that's that's not that's not a possibility for them because you have to have circumcision and baptism being the same with regard to faith. Now, this is actually a, a revealing quote by R.C. Sproul with regard to that. So th- notice the way that he he just flat out says, uh, he, he flat out uses circular ar- uh, reasoning here. So another uh, fallacy, but the way that he argues it is revealing to the paedo-baptist position. He says, quote, the most common argument against infant baptism is that it signifies things that flow from faith. And since infants are not capable of expressing or embracing faith, they should not receive the sign. Now, here's where it gets interesting. He says, if that argument were correct, it would nullify the legitimacy of circumcision in the Old Testament. If we reject infant baptism on the basis of the principle that a, that a sign that involves faith must never be given until after faith is present, we also negate the legitimacy of circumcision in the Old Testament. End quote. So notice what he's saying there is he's not even, he's not even assuming that somebody might have a problem with seeing the difference between baptism and circumcision. He's just saying, we know that can't be the case because we know about circumcision. And he, so he's assuming that baptism and circumcision are the same. And so he's saying, well, we know that baptism can't be related to faith because circumcision wasn't related to faith. And it's obvious that baptism and circumcision are the same. So therefore, you know, so you see the circularity of the argument. And again, you know, it's just helpful to point these things out is that you look at baptism by itself, no way to draw a conclusion that it does not relate to faith. 
Um, you just, in fact, I've done this multiple times just to double check myself. You just run the, the search. I do it in Logos. You just run the search where you look all the uses of baptize apart from John the baptizer, the John the Baptist that shows up quite a few times, but you look at where baptism is present and it's, it's through the expression of belief, the pistuo, um, which is related to pistis. So, so the, the act of believing on behalf of the believer, which is a, a, relationship to faith. In English, we have different words, belief and faith, but they are related in biblical language. They are, they are the same. And so we look at this and I, I hope the question we want to ask is, are baptism and faith related? I think they are. And then you would have to ask, well, are circumcision and faith related? No, they are not. Uh, and that's obvious. All paedo-baptists essentially recognize that uh, because of the, rec- well, essentially because of the fact that you have uh, children being given the right of circumcision. Um, in fact, you have, I don't know if I have the quote on here. I don't think I do. Uh, but you have a quote by Ross, I think, later on in his chapter where he, he talks about how um, Abraham, uh, c- we know he can't have, his circumcision can't be related to faith because we know everyone who came after him, his his children, it that can't relate to faith. So there's, there's an argument uh, from that continuity, although I would challenge that. And actually, that brings up an interesting point because Paedo-Baptists will often jump to Romans 4.11. This is an interesting passage, which actually doesn't have anything to do with baptism, uh, but it's often brought up in the discussion because of the connection between circumcision as the, quote, seal of the righteousness that he, that's Abraham, had by faith while he was uncircumcised, end quote. Now, what Roman in Romans 4, the argument Paul's making is that Abraham received circumcision after he had already believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So the question that, that is involved in this discussion of circumcision and, and baptism and even the relationship of faith is what does it mean that circumcision is said to be, quote, the seal of righteousness that he had by faith? Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that if you look at many of the traditional paedo-baptists and I, and even some of the contemporary ones, although there's a shift away from this, because of necessity in my mind. But you have some of the older Pado baptists like Boyce and Calvin, and they would be in complete agreement with most Baptists on this passage. Uh, in fact, Boyce actually says that uh, in his Romans commentary, he says, quote, After Abraham had believed God and God had imparted righteousness to him, God gave the seal of circumcision to validate what had happened. In the same way, baptism is a seal that the person being baptized has been identified with Jesus Christ as his disciple. You know, what's interesting is I am, I'm in complete agreement with, with Boyce's assessment with that. And I would actually say that that's also how baptism functions. So he's saying Abraham had faith. He believed God and circumcision was the seal of that. You have the faith first and then the circumcision. And I would actually agree with his interpretation of that. And he being the, um, Paedo-Baptist draws in that connection to baptism, saying that that's also what's going on there. The The problem is that there's, well, the problem is that what about kids? Can can children um, exercise faith? And and that's why Boyce and other Paedo-Baptists ultimately say that this is a unique experience for Abraham. And actually, I would agree with that too. Uh, but it's, I think, obvious when we look at all of the circumcision instances, uh, we understand that Abraham's existence, his circumstance is special. Uh, now, in fact, this is something uh, Ross uh, in his discussion actually includes a comparison here. He says, if we understand Abraham's circumcision to certify that he had faith or that God had given him righteousness, then we are at a loss to explain what Ishmael's circumcision meant, or Esau, or Saul, or any other candidate Jew who is an unbeliever and cut off. So in other words, Ross is saying that we can't, uh, he, he, he kind of represents the newer trend among Paedo-Baptists uh, by understanding this, this phrase differently. In other words, he doesn't view this as a, a actual seal or demonstration of the faith that Abraham had, but as a, yeah, it's a, well, actually in his words, I did write down his quote here. So he says, uh, 
what circumcision guarantees is the word of God's promise that righteousness will be given on the basis of faith. So in other words, uh, instead of reading Romans 4.11 straightforwardly, he would say that this is a sign um, to commemorate the idea, the symbolism, that righteousness is always given by faith. But I would just point out that this is a very systematic interpretation. It's it's driven by an agenda. Uh, if you just, you know, straightforward English and Greek, you, you wouldn't come to that conclusion. And so I would agree with Calvin. I think Calvin um, says it best here, and he's a paedo-baptist when he writes this, right? So Calvin says, quote, the fact as to Abraham himself that righteousness preceded circumcision is not always the case in the sacraments as it is evident from the case of Isaac and his posterity. But God intended to give such an instance once at the beginning that no one might ascribe salvation to external signs, end quote. And that's, by the way, that's exactly the point that Paul's making. It fits so well with his with his overall agenda in Romans 4, is he's arguing that Righteousness has no basis. Uh, justification has no basis in works. And so he's talking about the necessity that and the the examples that we see in both Abraham's life as well as um, show up in David's life where you have uh, this faith preceding the righteousness, preceding um, even the works that are involved with that. And so it's it's a logic. I would also point out, too. That's a natural reading, and both Pado Baptist, Reformed Baptist, Dispensational Baptists all are are founded in that conclusion. Now, there are some Pado Baptists that argue against that, like Ross and Marcel and others, who would say that it's a potential righteousness, it's a symbol of potentiality. But here's a logical problem with that view: is that what would the what would baptism actually signify as a promise? Because if what you're saying is if baptism is a symbol that those who, uh, as being a covenant member, you are guaranteed that if you, if you come to Christ in faith, then you will be given righteousness. How is that any different than a non-covenant member? How is that any different than a non-believer? It's a huge logical problem because at that point, then baptism means nothing different uh, to a non-believer because the non-believer also has the same promise that if you respond in faith to Christ, you will be given righteousness. So I, I don't understand. Well, okay. So I do know why it's, it's a bit of a logical necessity because you're trying to, you know, you're trying to avoid this fact that Abraham had a special connection given to faith and circumstance, uh, faith and his circumstances with uh, having to undergo circumcision as an adult. Uh, I, I understand that, but I don't think it's a problem. Older Pado baptists didn't view it as a problem. I think we can acknowledge that as, as an exception. I do think the view of Ross and Marcel are not uh, very exegetically defensible. But either way, I think the even that's kind of a, an excursus in talking about Abraham and faith, because it's obvious that that faith's, Abraham's faith preceded circumcision, but it would be pretty much... Uh, indefensible to say that circumcision and faith are intimately related because of uh, how things work later on with regard to Abraham's progeny and all all the children when they're eight days, all the male children when they're eight days old, they are circumcised. So so I think that's one of the biggest dissimilarities. And it, it's really worth noting and thinking about why, why is this so dissimilar? Um, what is the significance here? And who then would would the participants be different in circumcision versus baptism if faith is integral to that? By the way, the way that the Catholics and Lutherans argue for that say, yes, uh, faith is essential. And so there needs to be faith involved uh, either by the, the parents, which is infused to uh, the child in some sense, or in the, in the, some understandings of Catholic theology, you have faith that's actually given to the child through baptism. And so you have that understanding, um, which those are other episodes to be had. Let's just say that way. So that's the first dissimilarity. Uh, second dissimilarity would be, and this is a big one too. This second dissimilarity here would be that circumcision specified a physical and national identity with Israel. Baptism only specifies a spiritual identity with the church. Now, I want to talk about that because I want to head off an objection right away. Uh, I will concede that circumcision definitely functioned beyond a 
uh, physical identity and a national identity. It also included a reminder uh, of, you know, like Deuteronomy 10, for example, your physical circumcision should remind you that your spiritual circumcision, i.e. regeneration or uh, the renewal of the heart, if you will, those are essential concepts. So that's fine. Circumcision, that's why I worded it the way that I did. Circumcision specified a physical and national identity. It can do more than that, but it can't do less than that. In other words, that is an integral part of it, is that it did specify a physical and national identity. It can go beyond that. That's fine. But notice that baptism can't go there. Baptism does not specify a physical or national identity, but it only specifies a spiritual identity within the church. Okay, so there's a huge dissimilarity here. And there's a couple ways we can prove this, but it is a, it's, so this actually shows in my mind another, another reason why baptism and circumcision can't be viewed as equal because one was viewed with a, a national physical identity with a nation. And, and this one is baptism is, is only a spiritual identification with the church. So one of the ways we can show this is by observing that many adults, were circumcised in the Old Testament apart from a profession of faith in Yahweh. So many adults, and this is no, no Pado Baptist church would ever allow this. Many adults being circumcised apart from profession of faith in Yahweh. So a couple examples of that, obviously in Genesis 17, we're given uh, command for that to happen. So in Genesis 17, 12 and 13, God tells Abraham to circumcise uh, the one who is eight days old among you. And then he goes on and says, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or, or here's the key phrase, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is in your born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Now notice the key there that even adult males who were bought from a foreigner must be circumcised. And obviously it's regardless of a profession of faith. There's, there's maybe somebody would want to, I don't think anyone would want to argue this because it's super uh, shaky, but if somebody did want to try to argue, well, maybe it's assumed that there would have to be a profession of faith by the slave that's bought uh, before the circumcision would happen. Well, that's not what the text says. And it's, it's, possibly unlikely given some of the uh, stipulations that we see in Deuteronomy and the, the laws governing uh, slavery of foreigners that that they would even do that. Um, just just for example, in war, Israel, if Israel was going to war with somebody, um, instead of slaughtering the entire nation in genocidal kind of conquest, uh, there was allowance for taking some of the people as slaves. Uh, as, you know, really an act of mercy to spare them. But there's no guarantee or even assumption that those individuals of those nations are going to embrace uh, Israel's identity or their or their religion, um, right? So there is the necessity to circumcise, but, I mean, it's not, it's that that's apart from the profession of faith. So just reverse it. If circumcision and baptism are the same, would we allow an adult to be baptized in the church if they did not make a profession of faith? I don't think so. In fact, uh, many uh, Pado Baptists are actually on record uh, saying, you know, they there needs to be a valid, uh, intelligent confession of faith before somebody's baptized. Now, there's there's also a historical narrative, so that's in the actual prescription of circumcision itself. But Joshua 5 also gives a very interesting narrative, uh, which talks about the circumcision of the people of Israel after they've come out of the wilderness wandering. You remember the story, they were supposed to go into the land of Canaan, but they rebelled against God. They didn't trust him. And so God sent them to the 40 year wilderness wandering. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and the parents refused to circumcise their children. And so they they get to the Jordan River. They cross the Jordan River on their way to Jericho. And God says, it's time to circumcise the entire nation because you're my people and nobody has been circumcised yet. And so I want you to circumcise the entire nation. Now, you cannot make me believe for a second that every single one of the individuals who was circumcised was a genuine believer in Yahweh. 
You cannot make me think of that for a second. In fact, I would actually say it this way. If you wanted to argue that way, if you wanted to say, yes, every single person that was circumcised that day in the whole nation, uh, Joshua 5, 8, the whole nation was circumcised. Uh, every single person was a believer. Well, I would actually throw us back to Jeremiah 31, where it said, they will all know me. And we, I think both Pado Baptists and uh, Reformed and Dispensational Baptists would would argue that that's talking about a a salvific knowledge among the entire community. So my thought would be, well, that is better than anything we've ever seen. If the entire covenant community in the Old Testament knows Yahweh at that point and they have a relationship with him, then what in the world are we looking for in the new covenant? Because this was way better than anything we've ever seen so far. So the point being, I think you have to concede that there is no way all of these people that were circumcised knew Yahweh. And so I think we, we acknowledge then that this, there is something about circumcision that is different than what we know to be true about baptism. And that circumcision relates to physical and national identity. Uh, and that leads to the second point, um, within this dissimilarity. Uh, talking that circumcision inherently relates to physical and national identity, but baptism does not. It only relates to spiritual identity. A second evidence of that would be that no matter who the child was in Israel, they had an absolute right to be circumcised regardless of whether his parents were believers or not. And I think you can even go further than this. So not only did a child have an absolute right to circumcision, regardless of the godliness of his parents, um, you think through Joshua 5, anybody who's associated with Israel, any male who's associated with Israel had a right to be circumcised. That was, that was their right. They did not need to make a profession of faith. Um, it was, it was as part of their identity being an Israelite, they had that right to be circumcised. And somebody may, may challenge that, but you, there is no place in the prophets where you see somebody saying you don't have a right to be circumcised. In fact, you see the opposite. You actually see the prophets saying you're uncircumcised of heart or you're uncircumcised in ears. Uh, in other words, basically the prophets seem to be playing on this assumption that every single individual is circumcised within the covenant community. And he's saying that really you need to, you know, fix your ears to hear. You need to fix your heart to, to, to believe. And so, they never question the right of any of these Israelites to have uh, this this right, uh, this participation right within the Old Covenant community. And I think we also see this even in the prescription of the covenant itself. In Genesis 17, 12, uh, God tells Abraham that this is what is to be done for every male throughout your generations. And it's not specifying believing parents but simply one's identity as a male child, that's all that mattered. So any male child throughout your generations has the opportunity to be circumcised. And notice that this was God's mandate. Uh, and it was to you, this is the quote in Genesis 79, to you, to your offspring, and after you throughout their generations. Now, it's transgenerational, right? This is a transgenerational command. In other words, multiple generations, you and your offspring, that's at least one generation. And throughout their generations, that's at least one more generation, but probably more. So in other words, it's very different than what reformed paedo-baptist tradition holds to today. Um, not every reformed paedo-baptist, uh, church would hold to this, but the majority, most of the uh, Presbyterian churches say that you need to have one believing parent in order to be baptized as an infant. But that's actually, on an interesting historical note, that's actually not the original view of the reformers. In fact, um, there's a good article by Gavin Ortland uh, entitled, Why Not Grandchildren? An Argument Against Reformed Paedobaptism. And he actually goes through a historical analysis of some of the uh, reformers like Calvin and Samuel Rutherford. And he shows that it was it was very common among the reformers. It seemed to be the majority position where if if you had a, a child somehow associated with the church, he didn't have to have believing parents. If, if the child was associated with the church in any way, he had the right to be baptized. 
In fact, um, I like a quote that Samuel Rutherford had. Uh, he, he said this, quote, If the children of wicked parents were circumcised, all without exception, notwithstanding the wickedness of their parents, then the children of these who are born in the visible church of Christians are to receive the same seal in nature and substance of the same covenant of grace, which is baptism. So again, what he's saying there is if we look at the Old Testament and it's obvious that everyone receives circumcision, even if their parents were super wicked. So everyone receives circumcision, even among the wicked. So if that's the case, then we ought also to baptize anyone who's associated with the Christian church because of the covenant of grace. So it's interesting that this this was used to be the view, and I'm actually not sure how, and, and in Ortland's article, he actually doesn't know, or maybe he just didn't write about it, but he, he didn't express why there was this massive shift in the uh, Presbyterian reform tradition, where now it's actually mandated in most assemblies that a child needs to have one believing parent in order to be baptized. In fact, if I remember correctly, that's actually the view that's enshrined into some of the creeds and the, and the statements of faith. And so it's, I think, worth observing. Let's not lose the big picture here. It's worth observing that there is obviously some major differences that even Presbyterians in the Reformed tradition acknowledge. But one of the big questions that I would ask is why, why are there these differences? If they are talking so much and so adamantly about the connection between circumcision and baptism and how they have to be identical because they are the in the same place as the covenant sign of the covenant of grace, well, why are there allowances for these major inconsistencies? That, that's really the, the question. If circumcision and baptism are said to be the same in equality and essence, then why are these significant differences? You have adults being circumcised who are not Christians in the Old Testament, and you also have uh, anybody who's associated with Israel being allowed to be circumcised, but then in the New Testament, you'll, you, need, you mandate the Christian parent. There, there are some inconsistencies. So I'd, on that note, I want to conclude just talking about three common inconsistencies in the traditional reform paedo-baptist movement. And so the first one, this is how one of the most common inconsistencies uh, with regard to observing this connection. The majority view is that a child needs one believing parent in order to be baptized, but that's a discontinuity from circumcision, first of all, and it's a discontinuity with the traditional reformed movement at its inception. So my question would be, um, why is that justifiable? On the one, on the one hand, you have two questions, right? On the one hand, how is it, uh, that you have the, the non-believers, uh, as a part of the covenant community, the wicked uh, having their children circumcised and there's nothing in scripture that says that that should have changed from the old to the new Testament. And so why is it that there's that change? And why is it that there was some waffling back and forth in the reformed tradition at the very outset of that? Remember, and this, I point this out in, in love, of course, but the, one of the major things to remember is that the big argument by the reformed community is that we are assuming continuity and unless Unless there's a specific chapter and verse which tells us something should change, uh, if there's if there's nothing that tells us something should change, then we want to keep the continuity. Remember, that's the, that's the default. That's how this argument is formulated. And I'm saying that the Reformed tradition is being inconsistent with what they say their presuppositions are, because this is a major point of discontinuity even though it should be a point of continuity, if that makes sense. There should not be a need to have a child having one believing parent in order to be baptized if you are following the link between circumcision and baptism. Now, second one, another inconsistency, is that adults are not baptized apart from a profession of faith in Reformed churches. And I'm a fan of that. I think that is baptism because that's what the New Testament talks about. But again, why would this change? Why, if the, if the covenant community is a mixed community anyway, why would we not allow an adult to be baptized who refused to make a profession of faith, but he wanted to be a part of the community through baptism? Why would we not allow that? And so that is, that is 
in my, I have an answer to that, or I know how I would answer that. And I know how, I know how my reformed brethren would answer that as well. I, I understand that, but I'm saying that this is a major discontinuity and it's a inconsistency. Okay. It's an incon- inconsistency. If we're talking about the same covenant from old to new Testament, if we're talking about the same sign of the covenant from old to new Testament, why this inconsistency? Why is there a major divergence here? And then also, this is, this is another inconsistency is that why are infants who are baptized not allowed to partake of communion? Why are infants who are full members of the covenant community not allowed to participate as full covenant members? And, and by the way, um, there are some exceptions to this. In fact, Doug Wilson is a notable exception where his, his church does practice what's called infant communion. And of course, the presupposition behind this is that they do need to be able to participate as full, uh, new covenant members in communion. And, and here, here's why I'm saying this is an inconsistency because in the Old Testament, a circumcised individual was a full covenant member. There was no, there was nothing ever in the Old Testament about saying, okay, you're circumcised, but now you need to make a profession of faith before you can fully participate in tabernacle, religious, cultic activity, or before you can offer sacrifices or anything like that. No, there was nothing like that. When you were circumcised, you had full authority to participate completely in the covenant community. And there's there's never any indication in the Old Testament that a grown child was denied anything um, from that. And so when we look at this, why this disconnect? In fact, in Luke 22, 20, uh, you see Jesus actually saying that the, the, the communion cup, as it were, is the representation of the new covenant. And so why would a new covenant member not be allowed to participate in the new covenant celebration? That makes no sense. Paul called it the observance in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. He too called the taking of the cup uh, a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice as part of the new covenant. So if the Lord's table, the, the, the Eucharist, as um, some have been wont to call it, if that's an integral part of new covenant member uh, memorial and symbolism of what Christ has done for us, why is it that new covenant members who have been baptized, the children, are not allowed to partake of that until they make a profession of faith? Well, I can tell you why, um, because in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that if you partake with unrepentant sin in your life, you're, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And the question is, though, is that consistent with the, the picture of Old and New Testament? And it's, it's more consistent to recognize that the New Covenant community is to be made up of believers only, and that's why communion is withheld to them than it is to argue that infants who are baptized, who are full members of the New Covenant community, cannot partake of communion until they make a profession of faith. So this is just a consistency, and it's obviously an inconsistency because even within the Reformed tradition, you have certain churches that say you need to allow children who are baptized to participate in communion because of this principle. Because in the Old Testament, circumcised individuals uh, did participate in all of the covenant uh, community aspects and full, t- full participation. So it's, it's very in- inconsistent and there's no reason, no biblical chapter or verse why a full covenant member, a part of the, uh, covenant community should not have the privilege or benefit to partake in communion, which is a, a new covenant participatory right. So those are three major inconsistencies. That, that link with circumcision because of this connection. Why, why, on the one hand, circumcision is the, the sign of the covenant for entrance into the old covenant community. And in the New Testament, baptism is viewed as the same sign, uh, apart from the external observances. And so I think it's really important to think about those things is that I think that there are inconsistencies in, in our, uh, reformed brothers and sisters viewpoints. And it's, I, I hope that that challenge is, is helpful to them. And, you know, we didn't even get to look actually at the symbolism of circumcision and baptism. That's a whole nother episode at some point, I'm sure. But it it seems rather obvious that circumcision and baptism symbolize different things instead of being the same. Uh, There are obviously a lot of uh, things that we could talk about with regard to that. But 
needless to say, in the Pado baptist viewpoint, circumcision and baptism uh, have to symbolize the same thing. And I think the New Testament is very clear about what baptism symbolizes. And I think the Old Testament is equally clear about what circumcision symbolizes. And I think if you just compare those, you recognize that there are differences. Uh, so maybe at some point we'll hit that up in the future, but I'm, I'm thinking we'll move on to other things after, after a little bit here. Now, what I would encourage is obviously do your own research. Look at how baptism and faith are related. That's obviously a huge point. Uh, I would also say that circumcision and faith not related. In fact, I, I don't think uh, anyone really argues that they are. Uh, you look at the major distinctions and differences which are observed, some of the inconsistencies within a covenantal theology framework holding that baptism and a circumcision are equal. There are some major, major uh, issues with that. And remember, this this is what I want to get across, big picture, major point here. As a Reformed Pado-Baptist, the main argument is that we are under obligation to prove that something has changed since it has been this way since the time of Abraham. The 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 key is that we we want to allow Scripture to stay unless Scripture tells us something changes. And so, I would I would leave the Pado-Baptist with this challenge: Why does the Reformed Pado-Baptism expression looks so different from circumcision when there's no scriptural instruction for those changes. Why does it look so different if there's nothing in scripture that tells us it should look different? That would be my challenge. Well, I hope this is helpful. I enjoyed uh, going through a lot of the Pado-Baptist books and looking through their discussions on this. Hope to see some of you at the conference. You can always reach out to me through my website, peterhuman.com. You can also check out shepherds.edu or looking for the conference material, you can look at shepherds360.org. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.